0: Hey, everybody, welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about earning a living independently doing something you really care about. And today, our guest is Lydia Lee. Lydia runs Screw the Cubicle at screwthecubicle.com, where she helps purpose driven people discover the right business idea, bring it to life, and own it so they can quit the nine to five and start living a life of freedom. She calls herself a work reinvention coach, and from what I gather, she's also quite the world traveler. Lydia, thanks so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we finally get to have this conversation.
0: Absolutely. I've been looking forward to it, and uh, I thought, since we haven't had a chance to talk before, and maybe some folks listening to this aren't familiar with you either, that we could start out with your story. I'd love to know, uh, to begin with, just walk us back and tell us how you started your career.
1: And do you mean my career in corporate or my career in entrepreneurship?
0: Well, uh, let's go back a little bit and um, go into the corporate life because I like to visualize how people mm. lived before they were entrepreneurs and um, what was going through your mind and, and maybe what the breaking point was that helped you start making that transition.
1: Yeah, happy to share. Well, corporate, if you looked at my Old resume, it kind of looks like it's for five different people. (laughs) I was one of those individuals that sort of jump shipped from job to job every two years, except for my last corporate gig. Um, And I was sort of someone that I guess you would categorize as sort of a multi passionate or I think nowadays the new term is multi-potentialite, <laughs> mm-hmm. where you have multiple talents and gifts and you sort of get bored pretty easily doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, but my, my latest, I guess the, the, the corporate um, experience I had before jumping into entrepreneurship was that I worked in uh, the international education uh, industry. So primarily my job was uh, a business development director. And I traveled a lot for that. I was living out a hotel rooms probably six months out of the year. Uh, and my job was to promote education in Canada and try to get foreign students to study abroad uh, and to experience internships and up-level their skills as, as sort of young students and sort of bring that experience back to their home countries. Now, the job itself, to be honest, was a good job. It actually was probably the job that gave me the travel bug of, you know, exploring and adventuring except it's not as sexy on paper when you travel for work because you're kind of in sort of multiple you know hotel rooms in the middle of Ukraine or Russia or Turkey somewhere and you never see the light of day because you're in a conference for about 10 hours for the day (laughs) so it's not as sexy as it appears on the resume Um, And and then yeah no go ahead keep going I was going to say my, well, you talked about the breaking point. And so I I have this um, talking about traveling for work. It sort of happened my breakdown, which is, actually a massive sort of epic burnout moment uh, happened to me on a business trip when I was in uh, Russia in the dead of winter in 2012, which is probably in itself like a formula for depression. I don't know if you've been to Russia in the winter, (laughs) but it's not nice. It's very cold. Uh, And the hotel rooms were not also very pretty. My my company tends to put me on a bit of a budget, (laughs) if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. And so being on the road, I think at that point for about two months on the road. Um, and I hadn't taken a holiday for two years because I was just someone that loved to work myself to the bone. Um, and that was sort of the moment that my physical body sort of said, no more, without sleep, without, uh, and then the jet lag and all the things that come with, you know, it sort of traveling um, career. I think all of that sort of caught up to me uh, at that moment during a trade mission that I was running with the embassy of Canada, uh, and I developed um, a short-term agoraphobia syndrome where wow. I could leave the hotel room. I know, and 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 it's like having a massive panic attack, and then everything sort of closes in around you. And I had about eight appointments to go to that day. I, you know, they sort of my boss would like give me about eight agent appointments that I have to sort of stuff into an eight-hour day, and I could not even face facing anybody really. And I had to take the next plane out because I thought I was having like a a mental breakdown. I think that's how it feels like when you have these sorts of um, very, very scary times where your body and your mind kind of disconnects. And I had to take a bit of a sabbatical from work and see a therapist, you know, And, and luckily I was with a therapist that didn't shove a bunch of pills down my throat and instead sort of helped me to question sort of my you know, my life and what decisions I was making that may have caused this feeling of a burnout.
0: And so, uh, yeah, this sounds like just the blueprint for acute burnout syndrome. I mean, you worked yourself to the bone, you didn't take any vacations, you were far away from friends and family, you mm-hmm. had a packed schedule. And you must have just found ways to drag yourself through your week, week after week for quite some time. Do you remember feeling like burnout was on its way or do you remember feeling depressed or confused or something leading up to that?
1: Yeah, you know, I get asked this question a lot. You know, was it, you know, were there signs that led me to, or could have led me to be more aware uh, of the signals, right? My body and my emotional well-being was sort of sending me. But the, the truth is, Corbett, I, I come from a from a very hardworking immigrant family. You know, my, my background's from Malaysia. Uh, we immigrated to Canada when I was about nine years old. I was really taught from my own parents, and I think this is sort of the conditioning that you get from your bring up, right? And your cultural background is that you have to work twice as hard to get where you want to go. And so this sort of story was like a record playing in my psychology, right? Like Mm -hmm. to gain success, to earn success, and to be ahead of like everybody else, you know, that has a better privilege or chance than you do, you better work harder, right? Than the guy. And I was in a very male dominated industry as well, you know, where a lot of the males there didn't have to go home and deal with anything. Like their wives were dealing with their children and so forth, you know? And as a woman, you know, I had to sort of feel like I had to put in a lot, a lot more, like clock out at nine o'clock and make sure my boss saw my email at nine o'clock to prove myself, you know? And so as I, part of that story was instilled upon me, I sort of had trained myself to be a very high achiever. So, so like my standard of normal. Was probably someone else's like breaking point, (laughs) you know? So it was like, did the signs occur? Probably, but I didn't even realize they were occurring because my level of achievement was so high that I sort of didn't realize I was exhausted, that I was tired. I felt like this was kind of the trajectory, right, of someone trying to get somewhere in the corporate life. And, And I was at that year aiming for a partnership. I was 27 at the time, being offered the dangling carrot of uh, being the youngest partner to ever be invited to be a partnership, to have a partnership in that 25-year-old business. And that felt like it was something that would never be offered to me again. (laughs) So I better work my ass off to get there. And I think that was that whole mentality of, you know, um, scarcity and and that sort of high achieving mentality, I think, um, didn't allow me to... And really see the truth and the exhaustion until it actually literally took me out.
0: And after your episode, after your um, burnout, did you go back to that job um, after your sabbatical or, or was that the end?
1: No, I I did go back in a sense of that. I I knew, at least knew what I needed to change within myself, like what I could control about the way I was operating, you know, in my particular position. I knew that was something I could easily make some changes on, right? Like Mm -hmm. how long I stayed at work. Like, did I take my work home on the weekends? Like I didn't know how to unplug and just doing that was itself a huge habit change. Um, And then when it came to sort of my, you know, half a year review With my bosses, I brought up some of the things that I wasn't happy with and how sort of we were being um, pushed out there, you know, to do the work that we need to do without a lot of breaks, you know, without a lot of um, holidays. But also part of it was that I chose not to take a holiday at times because I had amounted a huge amount of student loan debt. That, again, coming from an immigrant family, you know, my mother's voice in my head going, you better pay off that debt before you buy a house, (laughs) you know, and all the responsible adult things. So I was really cashing in, in a way, or cashing out my vacation pay in order to pay my debt. You know, that was sort of the way I was looking at things to be responsible. but what sort of was the wake-up call, I think, for me to know that um, I no longer should be working here was when I brought up all the different obstacles and hurdles I faced as an em- employee in that company. And instead of acknowledging the concerns and potentially working with me to make those changes in the organization, I was given uh, a, a- another carrot, which was, here's more money <laughs> that we're going to give you a race because we think that's what you need. And, also, here some things that we need to do to get you into the partnership role. It was more pushing me forward with the company without resolving any of the issues that I made. So once I had that conversation, I sort of knew this was, is like, you know, going into a relationship. And you're in the brink of divorce (laughs) and you realize your partner isn't going to change (laughs) and you sort of have to move on. And I think that was, I needed to have that conversation to sort of see where they would stand in making changes or not. And then that sort of allowed me to go, okay, my next chapter of work isn't here. And am I ready to do something on my own?
0: It seems so common in those high-pressure work environments for the employer to rely on just a couple of traditional levers Mm. to try to motivate you, right? Uh, Money, status, Mm -hmm. title, those sorts of things. Those are the things that they know. And when you go to them and you say literally – I'm having like an emotional breakdown here and uh, burned out, and I need more time for myself. I need, you know, more understanding in terms of just what human needs are from you as a company. Mm. They just don't even hear that and um, they just go back to their old patterns. And I guess maybe it works if they just churn through people or just find those people who are able to kind of grit their teeth and bear it. I had a a really similar experience working for a uh, consulting firm, a boutique consulting firm, where we went around to different Fortune 500 companies and spent months on huge data transformation projects and things. And as I was climbing the ladder there, looking around at the people who had made Partner they seemed to have an even worse life than I did mm, mm. because not only did they go to one site a week, but sometimes they were traveling to two or three different locations. Mm. And a lot of them were older and had children at home and, and so on and, and they were spending, you know, uh, Monday through Friday on the road and working sixty or seventy hour weeks and it just it didn't pencil out to me that, yeah, sure, they made a good wage, but how does that work? You know, how is that a life? I, I didn't get it.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the biggest telling signs for me was that during that same trade mission I was in, where we visited Russia, Ukraine, and Turkey, I spoke to one colleague who worked for the competitor, actually, but I respected him. He had been 25 years in the business. And it's always a good thing to ask, you know, people that are ahead of you, right? People that technically forecast for you the future of your work, because that's what you're really working hard to get to, right? And when I look at, when I asked him the question of, you know, what What would you, would you change the way that you've operated in this business? Like, could you, would you actually stay now knowing what you you know about how much time it takes for you to maintain your position, to keep your position safe and so forth? Because a lot of, uh, in the business development role is a lot about commission as well. So you got to keep working hard to maintain that six figure salary. And he said to me, you know, after two divorces, you know, and, what, not watching his kids grow up he would never want to do this again but unfortunately his skill set was so permanently aligned with that particular industry he couldn't imagine earning a living any other way you know so he felt really trapped towards let's say gaining his pension in a couple more years you know then actually uh, because he felt it was a bit too late for him to make those changes you know and then when i sort of asked him about told him about my own situation his advice to me was that if you feel this way now In 25 years, this will not change, you know? And so when I looked at the lives of my own bosses as well, I saw it as they were married when they uh, created that business 25 years ago and had the, the most tumultuous relationship at work, which I think that was what trickled down to the culture of everybody else. They were competitive in their own right, which made the rest of the department really competitive, you know? And so... A lot of it is, is, um, yeah, looking, looking at the people ahead of you in a sense, how they live their lives and what they value and how they make that living and isn't really truly making them happy can be very telling upon what you're about to sign up for.
0: Now, uh, here you are, you're in your late 20s, it sounds like, and uh, you've gotten signs that this is a rough life and, and maybe it's not going to be better just because you make partner or, or whatever. Um, it would
1: probably be worse. It would probably be worse, exactly. 20 more hours.
0: <laughs> had, you, had you had thoughts of entrepreneurship in the past? How did that come into your mind?
1: Yeah, you know, I never really imagined myself as an entrepreneur, to be honest, in the beginning of time. I have never had any evidence around me that I had the sort of bloodline that was someone that was a risk taker or, you know, I associate entrepreneurship with a lot of risk taking. Um, I didn't have any family that were, that were sort of uh, in my vicinity that I could look up to that were entrepreneurs. I think the last entrepreneur in our family was probably like my great-great-grandfather from China <laughs> that had like a tiny little... Um, uh, teddy bear workshop somewhere mm-hmm. in China, you know, years ago. And none of my sort of modern day family uh, were entrepreneurs. I mean, my mom worked for HSBC for 35 years. You know, most of my uh, family and friends also worked for big corporations to wait for that pension plan. So that was the, the reality that sort of I thought was the only way, right, to get to sort of a safe and sure path. Right To build a career um, so but but then, when I started to really look at alternative ways, like I didn't say I want to be an entrepreneur, I said, "I think I want to work for myself and I want to figure out a way to work for myself in the safest way possible, because, as I said, my risk tolerance at the time, and to be honest, it still is is very calculated risks. I'm not someone that jumps off a cliff and hope the parachute opens, kind of girl, you know mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of need some safety measures, and you know safety conditions set for me to be brave, you know, and courageous to take a leap. And so what came to me was like, how could I do what I do right now in a different way that allows me to still contribute to something uh, interesting and potentially utilize and leverage the social equity, right? And trust I potentially have already built in the industry and sort of built something from here just to learn how to be self-employed. Like I don't, I didn't, I wasn't interested in starting a big blown business or having a big website or, you know, all the things you think you need to have as an entrepreneur. I just wanted to learn how to work for myself, you know, in the safest way possible. So and, what, and you, yeah. you,
0: at the, at the time you weren't, um, you weren't hung up on trying to find your passion or, or, or the, no. the thing that you were meant to do in life.
1: Not at all. Not at all. I just wanted to get a little happier at work, a little bit more balance in my schedule and to be making enough money that I could maintain the lifestyle that I had in Vancouver. And Vancouver is an expensive city. Yes. So, you know, I'll, Talk to you about why I sort of moved to Bali. I've been in Bali for six years now, but why that decision sort of came to me. But in the beginning of time, my first business was not Screw the Cubicle. Uh, my first business was a transition business. It was a it was going into consultancy because that was an easy. I was the asset. I was the I was the talent, the talent, and the one with with the skill. And I had already, as I said, built social equity and a network, a professional network that that trusts me. I don't have to explain my gifts again, you know. And I could potentially find opportunities there. And a lot. More easily, you know, it's what my um, coach Pam Slim calls. You know, look into your watering holes first, right, before you get out there and try to do something different. And so, I became a consultant in the international education industry, and and actually pitched a uh, project with my current boss, right, um, and uh, and actually transitioned myself from full time employee to a part time consultancy for a particular project that I knew they wanted to go after. And so it felt like a bit of a, like, it wasn't a complete breakup, you know, with them. And it allowed me to make enough money to, to live a life in part-time hours and then allow myself to sort of explore who I was beyond the job titles that I was with, you know, in the other half of the time. So that felt like a very safe way for me to go into working for myself, but still having expecting a salary or expecting a paycheck at least at the end of the month. That's
0: great. I I love I love that transitional approach because it people underestimate just how difficult it is mm. to um, to be self-employed and to, to earn enough to live on, let alone changing careers entirely, which is what a lot of folks try to do. They try to become self-employed in an area that they have never worked in before. And uh, just throw out all of the, like you said, assets, relationships, goodwill that they've built up Mm -hmm. in their career over the years uh, when that could be just such a great way to transition, especially if you can work part time because then it buys you time to start looking around, gives you some breathing space where you don't have to feel so much financial pressure
1: absolutely. I think also, you know, what allowed me to work part time and still afford my life was I had to adjust my lifestyle costs too. I couldn't eat out all the time. I couldn't sort of frivolously spend my money, but actually, to be honest, when I looked at, you know, talking about leaving a job, you know, a lot of people sort of tend to go and they'll say to me, you know, I can't officially leave a job until I make the same amount as my salary at work. And sort of, this was the mistake I made too, where I said, okay, I, I make six figures right now. I make 120 grand a year. And unless I made 120 grand in some sort of self-employment pathway, I'm allowed to quit because it wasn't justified. <laughs> mm. But when I did the math, you know, this is the thing about having to actually look at the numbers and face the numbers, what I discovered was even though I was like boastfully saying, hey, six figures is what I make, I wasn't taking home six figures. You know, the tax, the tax rate for someone earning a six-figure income in Canada is about 40% of tax. So 40% of my money went towards the government every single month. And if I thought about the hours I worked, right, to make that whatever amount that was and divide that by the hours I actually was working, I was making less than my assistant at work. And so being able to kind of face the reality of those numbers made me understand that, you know what, I don't need to make six figures to live, but I need to be very mindful about what my lifestyle costs. Could I adjust some negotiable expenses, right? To help myself buy time, as you said, because time is actually a great asset for us as new entrepreneurs or new self-employed people because we're learning a lot of new things. We need to give ourselves that breathing room to not feel pressured into making a ton of money right away because we're not going to get there, especially if we're still trying to find out what our interests might be or test out certain skills. We need to give ourselves that time to explore and get curious without, you know, it to be every, you know, I have, I have to do 40 hours to be able to afford my life, you know?
0: And uh, how did that transition then work for you from this uh, consulting phase into starting your own thing?
1: Yeah, so I did the consulting thing for about six months, six to eight months, actually. Um, And that was great because it gave me that sort of cushion window, right, of trying new things. And that's something, again, for low risk tolerance people, (laughs) you got to give yourself a bit of runway to try things because you get scared you know and sometimes you give up easily and you got to begin again and so forth. And so when I was doing the consulting business I started a blog called Screw the Cubicle <laughs> which was actually the initial intention was to document my identity crisis going through that transition from employee to entrepreneur right and exploring you know the identity changes that happens when you decide to change a part of your life. You know it, it can feel like you're having a midlife crisis a bit too early. <laughs>
0: yeah, and, that, and, and you know, <laughs> also, it, it also it's um, not just the money, but but the status
1: mm. and
0: uh, and and just having created an identity uh, of you as this person who's climbing the corporate ladder, and and you know when you check in with your family and your friends, and they're asking you how work's going, and you're telling them you know great i just got a raise or a promotion and i'm on partner track and yes. there's all of this identity that's wrapped up in that and suddenly you're going to pull that out from under you that's and right. and and you know wonder what people are going to think of you that's that's a hard pill to swallow
1: It is. And I think a a lot of times when, when especially with people that have been in in industries or vocations for, you know, 20 plus years, you know, their lawyer, their doctor, they, they have this, it's like the thing you say at a dinner party, right? What do you do? I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer. You know, it's the thing that identifies you right away and sets you on a particular status in society you know, and we do depend on those things, whether we like it or not. And, and at times, it can feel kind of shameful to say that I'm giving up kind of a sure thing or something that I've paid, you know, like I said, my student loans, right? Lots of like student loans towards a particular career I was supposed to die with. (laughs) And I can't sort of bring myself to now admit I no longer want to be in that path. It's not an easy thing to say. And then secondarily for me, I had a lot of friends that were in sort of startups and, you know, the financial, um, sectors that were getting laid off at the time, you know, and here I was with a six figure job with benefits, you know, being able to fly everywhere globally every year, deciding to just quit my job, you know, and to talk to those guys about it, it almost felt like it was, it wasn't someone I should be having this conversation with, you know, so I couldn't share that dream with those people because it made them feel worse about their situation. So there's all these things that play sometimes when you make that change and that leap that that's to be considered.
0: Yeah, and um how did you how did you wrap your mind around that and um and decide that even though, you know, because you're a risk-averse person and I, I think a lot of us are, um it it, you know, it doesn't feel good to just leap and hope that a net appears or a parachute, as you said earlier. How did you get your mind around not only the uncertainty around salary, but also mm-hmm. Having to change your identity and um, and 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 find that that faith to start that website and to start putting yourself out there as this new person.
1: Yeah, the website was a was an interesting project for me because I knew that the minute I attached something about money making to the website, it would immediately cause me heart palpitations. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I sort of knew that when I started that website, I was giving myself, you know, like I, I'm how, what works for me when it comes to sort of doing something a bit out of my comfort zone is when I give myself a bit of uh, you know, like, uh, like a constraint of boundaries. So what that means is that like my mind is going to start, if I start that website, you know, and I say to myself, this better make me money in the end of 12 months, or right? I better find my passion within this project in the end of 12 months, that is a lot of pressure for someone like me. So what I found that's been really helpful is that I give my th- myself those constraints of time. So I say to myself, okay, I'm going to start this website in the simplest way possible with a sense of that I have no attachment to the outcome of what this website is, except for the, for the outcome of I'm sharing my journey generously. I'm allowing my story to be told, and hopefully some people, some people that read this blog might resonate with it, but I'm not looking for an exchange of any monetary value at this moment in time. This project is meant for me to test my voice, to share what I feel important to me at this moment in time, and it's kind of a bit of a, a self-help journal, if you will, right, for my own journey of transition, um, and I'm going to give it, you know, 90 days, and at the end of 90 days, and I'm not having fun with this project, or I don't feel that it's meaningful, or I don't think it's helpful to other people, then I might discontinue, and that's okay, you know, and, and that I can shut this down at any time.
0: And so, so you, you were you're basically just um taking trying to take all of the pressure off of, yes. of making this thing into something um other than Um, just a, a journal of sorts, like an online, public journal, and you were really measuring its success based on how you felt about the project.
1: Absolutely. And that, that might be part of, you know, what we might talk about later, which is that, that healthier and more liberating way to adjust our metrics for what's successful. You know, every Mm -hmm. time we think about success is attached to a number or a number of followers or a number of email subscribers, right? You know, that's what we're taught a lot of the times in Facebook ads (laughs) that cross over to our platforms, right? Uh, But a measure of success could be, hey, you know, I'm using this selfishly to explore the voice that I have. I I haven't done that before. I haven't allowed myself to express myself this deeply. And I don't really care who's listening to this. This is for me, you know, to sort of strengthen my muscle in trusting my voice. And if you can do that at the end of 90 days and you've been successful, who cares who's been looking at that blog in a lot of ways, you Mm -hmm. know? Uh, Or if that I'm being inspired by the topics that I'm writing, that I'm sharing or, or, or I get sparked really easily and it snowballs into sort of bigger series of topics that, that I think really matters in what I want to say, then that's a metric of success that you can measure or, or that you have more engagement of five to 10 people consistently, you know, every single week, even if it's not in the thousands, that's still a metric of success, you know, so that allowed me to do that in a much more healthier way, I think. And
0: did uh, the website or, or blogging become an, an integral part of what your business is today?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, the th- you know, Screw the Cubicle, what it is today, it kind of came about accidentally. <laughs> I got an email from a reader in like month three of Screw the Cubicle sort of being out there. You know, I, I didn't share it with anyone except friends and family, to be honest, <laughs> and just people on my Facebook, I think. Uh, and so then somehow, you know, in the magic of the interwebs, it sort of reached a few readers. And, and this woman who was a lawyer from Toronto um, messaged me and emailed me and said, I've been reading your blog for, you know, several months now. It really resonates with where I'm at in my career. And I'm wondering if you coach people to transition out of corporate. And at that time, I had no freaking clue what a coach was, <laughs> you know? And so I had to kind of Google the term. And I remember thinking, I don't really want to go back to school for this. <laughs> and I don't even think I want to, like, is it like a therapist? Like, I don't see myself. I'm way too blunt to be a therapist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, But am I, is a coach, if I was to define coaching for myself, you know, could I sort of, pick a new term that I like better, like a mentor, you know, or I'm just sort of helping someone do something a little better, right? And if I'm already doing that already in my words and in my blog and the sharing of my story, could I potentially create a bit of a system or a structure in how I might process this for other people, right, who didn't live my story? Could I still sort of attach some of the concepts and philosophies that I'm sharing into helping them create, you know, a new path for themselves without following mine? Right. And so that was sort of prompted, that seed was planted from a reader (laughs) to sort of go, hey, you know, I would pay for help. And I went, oh, that's interesting. I never meant for this to be a paying thing. Um, So then, what sort of that, that sort of sparked inside of me was that, Hey, how could I could a beta test this concept? How could I experiment with this again in a low pressure way without me, like, I don't know, launching a coaching page and a Stripe account and, you know, all the sort of official things that where you say I'm open for business. (laughs) So I thought I just need to, I just need to know if I enjoy coaching and if I am going to give myself permission to do coaching in the way that i feel authentic uh, authentically sound to coach in like you know the style and the way that i do it and who would i really want to coach and what problems do i really want to solve because i didn't really want to solve everybody's you know burnout and identity crisis issues like they should go to perhaps a therapist for certain things and so i needed to find my own boundaries in my work and what felt ethical you know for me to do and and solve and what things were sort of beyond my realm of expertise You know, and you wouldn't know until you do it, really. And so what I did was that I put out a um, very, very short and personal Facebook post to my regular friends and family and old colleagues and sort of, you know, network of friends and said, here's something that's sort of sparking my curiosity lately is that I've been putting out all this information. I'm just wondering if I could actually take someone on this process of transition by working with them on a more intimate level you know, that it goes from theory to practice and, and that you could get an accountability mentor to help you through this process, you mm-hmm. know, and, and walk you through it. Now, I, w- I didn't charge anything for it because I kind of felt like I wanted to make mistakes and allow myself to make mistakes. So I said, it's an exchange, but it's not free in a sense that it's not just about not paying a dollar for it, but you must be committed to feedback and you must be committed to if I decide I want to do that session over again, or I want to reintroduce that concept again, you're you're going to show up for that. You know, you'll be present in my own discovery of my work. <laughs> so if you're kind of ready to come with me on this ride and, you know, we can do this together, we're helping each other out, sign up. And so I ended up working with sort of eight guinea pigs of coaching clients for the, for about two months you know, figuring out my framework, figuring out what it is that I was willing and not willing to do. And in the process, understanding who I wanted to work with, who I never wanted to work with again, uh, and where I sort of can position myself in that niche.
0: Did you, do you remember, uh, did you struggle with the decision of whether or not to charge for those initial sessions?
1: I did a little bit, but not much. I mean, I know a lot of people, like my own clients, tend to ask me, you know, um, should I charge or shouldn't I charge? And, and the real answer is just it depends, you know, and, and it depends because um, for me, I didn't feel right to charge, was because my sort of background didn't, for example, encompass coaching before. So I, I, I didn't feel ethical to charge at that point because I needed to understand what this whole thing was all about. And I had only done this whole roadmap for myself. Like, how would I know that my framework and my concepts could work for other people? And I didn't want to build something where it was like, you know, follow my blueprint and you will be successful. Like that sort of stuff kind of pisses me off, right? Right. So I didn't want to be that person. And so I needed to understand what are some general philosophies that actually do apply to majority of people that sort of share the same values, but it's not a paint by numbers, follow Lydia's way and you'll get there kind of way.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah I find a lot of people um, overthink this stage a lot mm. and they they hear this. Um, mantra or some people have like a line in the sand that that, where they say you should always charge for your work and and people get hung up on that and and they don't realize that the purpose of this initial work, especially if you're doing consulting, isn't making money. It is honing your skills and understanding if you have something that is going to be valuable to a lot more people because the money that you're going to make from that initial client Mm. isn't really going to amount to that much. Uh, If you're going to turn this into a real career or a real business, you're going to have to serve many hundreds of customers or clients over the years.
1: That's right, and I think we have to also look at other benefits that we get from making a complimentary exchange. Is that we also get lots of good feedback that a paying client wouldn't want to give you because mm-hmm. they would say, "I paid for your expertise; you should know what you're you're doing," <laughs> yeah. and yeah. I don't want you to make mistakes. I paid for you know a process. I paid for a, a framework, and if you don't have that framework, you can create framework from working with real humans. And, and during that real human experience, like I call it sort of like a self-made internship, you know, we did that, didn't we? Back in the day, before we got into the corporate world, we happily right. worked for free. We even paid for school <laughs> without, with the risk of, you know, potentially not getting a job in that industry. We did it anyway. People are hundreds thousands of dollars in debt. You know, um, work, being in university with, you know, hopefully we get a job that we want after school. You know, and yeah. and so we we're used to doing that. We're used to getting our feet wet to understand and master right? The expertise that we're looking to go into and prove ourselves and gain confidence through doing. And so for me, it's so much more beneficial than just paying me a couple hundred bucks, right? I'm allowing myself to create almost like a lab where I'm allowed to make mistakes and screw up, which is fine because it's an honest exchange and we already told the customer that might happen. And it allows me to fix things, you know, when something doesn't go Right. And, and for that customer to be really honest with me without them being pissed off at me, you know, for not getting them to the goal that they paid for. And then, of course, t- potentially testimonials. You can get inaugural reviews of your work so that when you do charge for it, you already have, you know, it's not your first rodeo, right? You've done it before, you understand it, and you've got right, the proof in the pudding of, of reviews.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and in the beginning if you if you set up this artificial barrier of, you know, I'm not going to work unless I get paid for it, then um you have to imagine on the other side of that the potential customers are sitting there going, "Okay, but I don't see any testimonials. I don't see any proof that what That's you do right. works." And so, you know, you may never get a chance to see if what you have is really valuable to people just because you kind of have to break the seal on it to begin with. Hey, uh, before we keep going, I want to mention that today's episode is brought to you by the Freelance to Founder podcast. Freelance to Founder tells the stories of freelancers and solopreneurs who have scaled their businesses to be bigger than themselves. They talk with freelancers, bloggers, solopreneurs, SaaS CEOs, and lots more diving deep into their journey from independent entrepreneur to something bigger. Guests have included names like FreshBooks founder Mike McDermott, Emmy Award-winning designer Chris Doe, author Paul Jarvis, and more. G host Andrew Warner called it the most polished podcast he's ever heard. To listen, search Freelance to Founder in your favorite podcast player or visit Freelance to Founder dot com. Um, Lydia, I would love to know, uh, you mentioned something um, before we started recording in this, that you called anti-bro marketing. <laughs> and um, in, in the space that you're in and, and that I'm in as well, I mean, we operate in, in similar areas, um, helping people make that career transition, helping people figure out something that they can build a business around. There's a lot of competition out there. Yeah. Um, how, do, how have you been able to stand out over these you know, past several years that you've been building screw the cubicle. And um, what is bro marketing to you? <laughs> and what does anti-bro marketing mean?
1: Well, you know, the, the term sort of came from the original term, I think, when you're, uh, you know, I, I've been a digital nomad for six years. So you you meet again, it's a very male-dominated sort of uh place, right? Mm-hmm. And originally with the whole digital nomad movement came from the influence of Tim Ferris, who, who I still credit, you know, for helping me and and one of the books that I read that I think changed my life uh, and allowed me to sort of think about location independency as a particular pathway for life. Uh, but being a digital nomad and sort of traveling to, you know, remote locations where you work out a co-working spaces and sort of be a part of the community of digital nomads is mo- mainly uh, uh, what we call bromads. <laughs> and bromads are kind of the guys that are sort of millennials, maybe a little older at times that are, you know, in dropshipping businesses or sort of what they call the passive income dream. Right. And that's the sort of news that they spread. And 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 the truth, the only truth that they, s- they they see worthwhile spreading that if you're not having a passive income product, you're sort of you're, you're sort of a, a kind of a loser, <laughs> you know, that you, you want to start to work less in a way. Um, and in that realm of those bromance, uh come a particular type of marketing, right? Where, and I'm sure you've seen it, like when you type even the hashtag digital nomad onto Instagram or Facebook, immediately you get these sexy pictures of people working in the middle of the ocean on a boat somewhere, uh, hanging out in a hammock with coconuts, you know, they're sipping on coconuts while writing their latest article. I mean, all of that, to be honest, never happens. I mean, do you know how hot a laptop gets in the sun? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> especially underneath a palm tree, uh, it, yeah. it doesn't work that way. And, and so it's, it's sort of like selling the dream, you know, and making people feel almost bad if they're not hustling, you know, or they're not sort of automating everything, right? Or hacking their way into productivity. And so this was sort of the marketing that I was, you know, bombarded with, if you will, when I started to leave Vancouver to go and live elsewhere was that this was kind of all the people I met, <laughs> Um, and I didn't feel right that, or didn't feel right to me that this was the only way to gain lifestyle freedom, you know, that you had to be a dropshipper or an e-commerce person, uh, that services wasn't a thing, you know, to be did, proud of.
0: Did you find, uh, when you started traveling that you did meet a lot of those bromads or, um, was the, the, the group of people that were out there living abroad, expats, uh, running their own businesses, was it more diverse than that?
1: Well, you know, luckily, it's been, like I said, six years since I started, started my own digital nomad journey, and, and, and the whole landscape has changed, you know, uh, we're in, to the, for the better, in my opinion, because there, there are a lot more families, there's a lot more women, there's a lot mid-career people that are now not not only thinking that, "Oh, I have to be an entrepreneur to have lifestyle freedom, you know remote working is a way to be have lifestyle freedom. You can still work for other people you can work for you know companies like cisco who who are huge ambassadors for remote work and allowing their employees to have life and work from anywhere. you know more and more companies are you know warming up to the fact that happy employees have flexibility, you know mm-hmm. they do better work when you don't sort of you know breathe down their neck every hour on the hour right and so luckily. The exposure of more people that are doing more meaningful work and not um, and, and embracing that services and actually, you know, more intimate services are actually the way forward. What is what's missing at times from the digital products, uh, whereas the old way I think of being a digital nomad is about automating your funnel right? Like, oh my God, like the funnel trainings that I've had to sit through at every co-working space, <laughs> you know, it makes it look like that's the only way to achieve success that you've got to have this complicated, you know, really robust funnel and tripwires and all these sort of, you know, old, like to me, kind of very old school way of marketing to trick people to get in your email list and things like that, you know, rather than actually be educating them and then asking them for their permission you know, to be a part of your community rather than um, making them feel bad about their lives, you know, and shaming them into following you to have a better life. You know, and that's kind of what I mean by that anti-bro marketing is that there's already too many people doing that where they are, you I mean we've seen those ads, right? That go by and sort of go, doesn't your life suck? Doesn't it do this and that? And it makes it's a very negative approach to only make people feel depressed about where they're at. And then hopefully urgently they buy your product to not feel that way again. But you get a very low vibe kind of customer that way that sort of want the shortcuts to things. And I find that people that are looking to create and looking to reinvent themselves and sort of embrace this, you know, not to escape work. You know, they're not looking to escape. They're looking to create better work. These are better customers anyway to target because they're interested in doing good work and doing deep work to have the life they want rather than shortcut their way into what they think is going to be a happy life
0: yeah the other the other um point of difference I'd say between the kinds of people that are running those negative ads and and trying to make things look better than they are so they can almost you know um fear or scare their customers into purchasing um, That's right. I, I would say that a lot of them are hoping to uh or they see their customers just as um you know a faceless mass out there mm. with with wallets mm. as opposed to uh people like yourself and and us at fizzle as well you mentioned yeah. intimacy and generosity um i actually i think the relationships with our customers are one of the biggest reasons why i do mm. this business mm. and um it can be so enriching and so rewarding to get to know your customers on a more intimate level and to actually help them and see the transformations as opposed to just Um, you know, hyping things up and then asking them for testimonials, whether or not they've gotten results yet. Yeah.
1: And I think a more sophisticated customer and what I mean by sophisticated someone with a brain and, you know, someone that's actually wants to be in charge. Like they don't want to be told what to do. You know, they, they want to be guided, but they want to find their own way you know, mm-hmm. into that, their version of success. And I think that's what Fizzle does really well, you know, is introduce these different teachers, you know, different concepts, and you get to choose your pathway, whatever that looks like for you, because your version of work, right, needs to be your version, you know? It's not the blueprint of yours or mine, but something that they, they have to design based on the life they want to lead and have that kind of lifestyle business that allows them to have the balance of, you know, fulfilling work and the life they want, And I think as a new business owner, because of the fact that, again, you've got all these people, right, whoever's teaching them these sort of automated things to do, right, to gain a subscriber or make sure they buy your product, there is an opportunity here, in my opinion, is that because people are being bombarded with such sort of unintimate marketing, if you were to give generously, and you were to show up for your clients, and you were to sometimes surprise them by messaging them privately and helping them out without needing to showcase it to the public world, you're going to stand out by default because you're not no longer sort of appearing like everybody else that is trying to trick people into subscribing. You know, You're giving away and saying, hey, if you like this, you're welcome to join, but I'm not going to trick you to come into my email list. You can decide if you want to do that. You know, uh, and, and I think as a service-based provider, especially, because with services, especially if you're doing one-on-one coaching or consulting or you're freelancing, where, you know, a lot of what you do and the bulk of work you do requires relationship, I think your marketing has to reflect the same, you know? So if, if you're charging higher prices, it means you are giving people personal attention, you're giving them bespoke services, and you're making sure that their needs are met, and so your marketing can't be like the mass mail marketing people. They've got to sort of align with the culture and the values that your paid product is also representing.
0: Yeah, it takes uh, so much trust and assurance Huge. for someone to purchase a coaching package. They they really have to feel like they know you and that you really do care and that you're capable of leading them on that journey. And um, that sometimes takes many months uh, of someone, you know, being on your email list or or watching your YouTube videos or whatever it is that you're using for marketing, for mm. them to get to that point where they're co- they're comfortable. I know we've had people who've been on our list sometimes for years before they mm. end up trying out one of our products.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think like I think how you can sort of punch above your weight as well. Like as a new entrepreneur, is that you know. Your competitors potentially maybe are the really seasoned. they're 10, 15 years in the game and, and they've got automated courses or they've got bigger communities, right. That are a bit harder to manage. And again, you know, maybe some of those people are seeking for more answers quickly, quick, quicker, you know, so you can sort of be different by not sort of having a mass community. Like actually when you have a smaller email list and you have a smaller Facebook following or whatever it is that you choose to do, this actually gives you a lot more room to pay attention right? That you might not be able to do when you've got 10,000 people around.
0: That's you true. You have answer it, it, every
1: email, et cetera. Yes.
0: Right? Or, every, or every comment or whatever. Mm. It's impossible to do when you're totally. getting millions of views and uh, you, just can't, you just can't afford to spend that personal attention with people anymore. So yeah, it's, it's nice to try to just enjoy that while you have it and realize that, yeah, maybe you only have like, you know, a handful of people on your email list, but those are real people. Maybe yeah. you only have you know a dozen people reading a blog post, but that was a dozen people who read your work, you know, and mm. um and and that's that's something. If you can get a dozen people to read, then you can probably get two dozen people to read, and it doesn't take that many if you're building a services business to yes. be able to earn a decent yeah. amount of income.
1: That was what I was going to actually. I'm glad you brought that up because I remember you know my first year of coaching. I remember you know. Falling in that trap of like, oh, you got to build a 10,000 list. If not, you're, you're not going to survive, you know, that sort of uh, mentality. And I, and I just remembered like finally like having a reality check from talking to another coach. And And, and she's like, you're selling, like, you don't need that many clients a month <laughs> with the kind of services you're charging. You are actually an intimate boutique coaching business. And so you don't, you don't, if you talk to, like, you should be measuring your statistics based on how many powerful conversations you're having rather than how many followers or hearts you get from Instagram because those those don't mean anything. A response to your email is much more engaging, you know, than someone liking a post that may not have even read the post you actually wrote.
0: Yeah, it's it's so easy to just fall into the trap of only caring about bigger and bigger numbers, especially mm. When you're on a platform like Instagram and, and you know th- the way that they incentivize things yes. so that all people care about is the number of followers you have and the number of likes that you get on a particular post. And that tells you absolutely nothing about how happy and fulfilled that person really is and whether or not they actually have a sustainable, meaningful mm. business built on the back of that. You mentioned um, earlier, Lydia, something about defining what's enough and um looking at some healthier metrics can can you give us a sense of um maybe in closing here the metrics that you measure and care about in your business and for people who are just starting out what they should be looking at because they are going to be looking at small numbers. And it's not fun mm. to look at your you know, Facebook post that you work so hard at to see that 10 people liked it or, or whatever. So instead of caring about those numbers, especially those numbers that are so easy to compare to people who have massive followings and feel so small about yourself, what else could those people be looking at to make sure that they are making progress and to have a healthier relationship with their business?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's a a conversation worthwhile having for especially businesses that are starting out because it can feel like you're trying to do it all (laughs) to try to measure up to everyone else out there. Uh, And that's sort of what I call like business pornography. (laughs) And I hope you're okay with me saying this. It's like, you know, it's kind of like the same thing as pornography. It's like, you you get like, you know, when it's time for you to perform, you get a bit of limp dick (laughs) (laughs) because you've just been looking at everyone else and just feeling deflated. You know yeah. when it comes to your own business, I mean, I get that still if I'm not careful with who I'm following and sort of how much I'm on social media. you know and and nowadays it's more and' more easily to feel like an imposter uh, or not good enough because of the internet. you know, everyone shares their success stories and they're not sharing their burnout. they're not sharing like what they you know didn't get to do today. They're sharing all the great news on social media. so it's a very skewed you know reality <laughs> for business owners, so the first thing I would say, and that's what been, that's been really helpful for me is like first of all, we kind of need to put the horse blinders on a little bit when it comes to our own business is to like there's like a difference between like inspirational and then like comparison. the minute you start to you know it's great to be inspired by other businesses businesses or influencers that could allow you to dream bigger, you know, especially people that you respect and admire, but at some point we have to sort of shut that down to be able to listen more internally about what we want, you know, in our business. And we have to come back to the purpose of why we're designing a business for our lives. I mean, lifestyle is really important to me. I'm sure it is to you as well, you know, that we're we're designing work and we're designing a way of working that allows us to actually have the life we want. I mean, how many entrepreneurs do we know that might appear really successful on paper and in their brand, but are working crazy hours or not spending time with their family and so forth, you know? So, We've got to sort of understand what, why we're doing what we're doing and how does it align with the way that we want to live our lives. So the, the business design is an important question is how do I really want to work and what really makes me feel like my work is meaningful right now. And so the style of working is quite, quite important, like when it comes to a business model. Like what I found that when I start to, uh, about a couple of years ago, I tried to scale my business because I sort of reached really good success in my work and I sort of ran out of time you know, to coach more people. So I decided to scale into more product-based, you know, group programs, things like that. And even though, yes, it worked to a certain extent, I also found that my own pleasure for my work dissipated. I wasn't as involved. Things were more automated, right? I had other community people come in and sort of run the show. Um, And I, I I wasn't as I guess, in, in, inclusive into my community as I want it to be. And maybe that takes a bit of adjustment to that. But I also realized that a, a big focus of why I enjoyed my work previously was the kind of one-on-one intimacy that I liked. You know, and there's nothing wrong with remaining small. I think you guys pro- I think I saw somewhere that you guys interviewed um, Paul Jarvis from the yeah. company of one book, which, who, who I love, you know, I love Paul Jarvis, I love the concept of that book. And I wish I read that book <laughs> before scaling up in my coaching business, or, or believing that that's the only way to success, because every other coach is doing that, was to actually really think, like, not to be shameful that staying small is, you know, stay, staying small is a strategy. <laughs> staying small allows you to have more time. Staying small allows you to not manage people, which I figured out I'm not good at. (laughs) I'm just not good at managing people. I love working with people, working with people of high caliber and hiring them for particular projects. I don't really love mentoring and running and managing a team. You know, there's like knowing that about myself allows me to know what kind of business I'm designing and what sort of products that I'm also creating that serves my need as an entrepreneur. You know, not just about what the, 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 we always talk about what the, what the customer needs, which is important, obviously to build something that matters to people, but we forget to check in, like what's meaningful for me to work on or the, the way I work on things. Like I'm a deep diver, you know, I can't do short little videos and so forth. Like I'm a long form kind of person. And I think the way I coach is that way as well. I need that time, you know? So if I'm trying to manage 25 people on a one hour call and I'm a deep diver, it always goes over. And then I always feel like I failed. <laughs> so, you know, that design allows me to either fail or succeed. And I think looking at the, the model of working, our personalities, our natural abilities, and what's in our genius zone can help us determine what kind of business we're building.
0: Love it. It's, it's so important to not just try to mimic what other people are doing out there, but to take a deep look inside at your future and to try to envision the way that you want your business to be built in a way that's comfortable for you. Yeah, I think uh, so. Thank you so much for being our guest today. I really appreciate you sharing so much about your life and your background and the breakdown and and, uh, the rebuilding and all the success that you've had since. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome, and thank you so much for having me.
0: You guys can find more from Lydia Lee over at ScrewTheCubicle.com, and you can find the full show notes and links for this episode over at FizzleShow.co. This is episode number 351. As always, thank you for being here. I'm Corbett Barr, and until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show.